This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, we're looking this morning at verses 1 through 4. Page 814 in the Pew Bibles. Hear the word of God. And he, that is Jesus, called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Father, as we study it now, that you would give us clear and sharp minds to think about your word to think about these words, and we pray that your spirit would lead us into a knowledge of the truth, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes it's the small things, the things that at least up front appear insignificant, that turn out to be the things that change our lives. One time when I was near the end of my college career, I'd ordered a Bible from a Christian bookstore there in my hometown and got a call that had come in. So I, I went to go pick it up. And when I went to go pick it up, I happened to speak to the uh, salesperson who was there in the store uh, who, who brought the Bible uh, to me. And I had a faint idea who she was. I knew who she was. She'd been in high school with me, actually a year ahead of me in school. And so I didn't really know her. I just kind of knew who she was. We got to talking. And uh first conversation I had with uh, Barbara Bingham, who a little less than three years later became my wife. So you never know what an event that today brings might eventually lead to, both certainly things uh, delightful and joyful like that, sometimes things painful and hard. As we look at these four verses here in chapter 10, it's almost easy, even tempting, to skip over them. To get on to the meat of what Jesus is saying. The red print, right? Must be the part that's true if it's in red. Of course not, the whole Bible's true. But to get on to what Jesus says to them is skip beyond what happens here in these first four verses. Because what happens here... Uh, in these words, is something that is momentous, not just for Jesus' life and ministry, and not just for these 12 men who are named here, 
But what happens in these four verses is something that changed the world from that day until our own. Now, as we've studied the Gospel of Matthew, we have seen how uh, Jesus demonstrates his authority in word in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus is teaching. And afterward, the people are just astounded by the authority with which he spoke. And then in chapters 8 and 9, seeing Jesus' authority in terms of his deeds, specifically his, his power to bring healing, his power to cast out uh, demons. In short, uh, his power in pushing back and rolling back Satan's kingdom and establishing and advancing the kingdom of heaven. But we come to a turning point here in chapter 10, because as we've said before, up to this point, it's pretty much been all Jesus. Certainly, he is the embodiment of the kingdom, but at this point, he's been, other than John the Baptist, his forerunner, the only one who's mentioned in the expansion of the kingdom. That's about to change here in these verses, where Jesus takes his authority, both in teaching and in doing, and delegates that, or communicates that, gives that, to these carefully chosen men. Till now it's been all Jesus, but now he invests himself, and indeed gives some of his power to these other men, uh, to multiply his ministry, and to further expand the uh, kingdom of heaven and the proclamation of the gospel. And so what I want us to do this morning is just to give uh, an entire morning to the study of these few verses and what is going on here, because this is momentous. This is a significant turning point, not only in Jesus' ministry, but in the world. Well, let's look then, first of all, at Jesus' empowering of the twelve in verse one. We read there, Jesus called to him his twelve disciples. Now, that's Curious that it would, Matthew would refer to it that way. Uh, maybe that's just Matthew looking back in hindsight. These were the ones who became the twelve. But I think it's quite possible to read this in, in such a way that even before that they were designated as apostles, they had sort of become known as his twelve. Now, Jesus had other disciples. There were others uh, who were following him, others who were listening to him. But it seems that these 12 may already, at this point, at least informally, have become something of a, a, a group of 12, of Jesus' closest disciples. And we've already seen the calling of five of them, uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew, the tax collector. Uh, we don't know about the others, how they were called, how they came to Jesus. That's not recorded. But we do know at least five of them. And they seem to have a particular relationship with Jesus that Matthew could call them his 12 disciples. And what does he do? He says he gave them authority. Well, we've already seen Jesus' authority. And now Jesus, having called these men to himself, gives that authority, shares his authority with them, authority to what end? Well, he tells us, over unclean spirits to cast them out. Now, we've already seen Jesus doing that. Demon possession is, is a real thing. Uh, and the Bible is careful to distinguish between human illness and demonic activity or demonic influence or possession. Although sometimes the, the physical affliction grows out of that. The Bible, and we've seen this in Matthew, makes a distinction between the two. The one is not always caused by 
the other, and demon possession was not merely their primitive explanation for what we would know today as various illnesses. They're careful to distinguish between the two. Well, just as Jesus had this authority over Satan, this authority over uh, Satan's uh, minions uh, to cast them out, so Jesus gives his authority to do that to these men, to these twelve. And he also, again distinguishing, to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, the Bible's already referred to Jesus healing every disease. Well, we're probably best to understand that not so much he healed everybody, he didn't, but that he healed all kinds of diseases. He wasn't limited to a particular kind, but he could heal all kinds of diseases. And in short, what Jesus has been doing, the power that he has had, this divine authority, Jesus now conveys that to these disciples to continue that kind of ministry. I think, well, that's great. Wouldn't that be really something, you know, to, to be one of those, have that kind of authority? And as we'll see, uh, they were quite taken with the authority. And Jesus reminds them that the big thing is not this authority. The big thing is that they're saved, that they, are, they belong to the Lord. Their names are written in heaven. Nevertheless, it must have been rather heady and exciting to have that kind of authority. But, you know, as the church today, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. There is a power that is given to us, certainly different from that given to the twelve apostles, that, like Jesus' own authority, the miraculous works, was meant to authenticate who he was, well, so for them. And yet there's great power in the church today as well, as God has given to us his Holy Spirit, power in prayer, power in love, power in the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Well, that's the first thing we see here. Jesus calls these to him and he empowers them. Now, who were they? Now, we want to spend some time looking at the identity of the twelve. Uh, who were these whom the Lord Jesus gave this power to? Well, they're designated. Their designation is there in verse 2. The names of the twelve apostles. The only time that phrase occurs in the Gospels, in fact, in the New Testament, except for Revelation 21, where he'd seen earlier, uh, Mark and Luke refer to the twelve whom he called apostles, but only Matthew refers to them as the twelve apostles. That's their designation. Now, the word apostle uh, refers to someone who is sent. It comes from a verb meaning to send, or I send, apostello, I send. And it was a, a word used in the context of uh, their day, sometimes of uh, particularly naval emissaries, uh, those sent by sea, although not exclusively, but often referred to that. But uh, in the Bible, it's used in varying senses, sometimes in a, in a broad sense, uh, to refer to a messenger, same word, someone sent with a message, but also here in a narrower sense of those who were sent with the message, the message of good news, the gospel of Christ. Well, they are designated as these, these ones who were sent to bear witness to Christ in a particular way, those Acts tells us uh, who had been with him, who had witnessed his resurrection, and so forth. Although at this point, of course, uh, those things have not happened. They're only getting started. Well, that's the designation. They're called apostles. Now, I remember being in seminary, and there was a church in the neighborhood behind the seminary, and 
Um, you know, it had the sign, had the name of the church on the sign, and underneath it had the name of the, the pastor. It said, so-and-so, so-and-so, comma, apostle. Now, I've talked with our elders some about maybe adjusting our sign a little bit that way, but they haven't gone for that. Uh, well, in, in one sense, yes, that could be true. Anyone who follows Christ is uh, given a share in carrying out the Great Commission, and we are sent with that message. However, it's also true that this term apostle, as it's used here, rightly applies to no one in this narrow sense, this specific sense uh, that it is used here of those who were witnesses to the earthly life and ministry, the death, the resurrection of Christ, and were given this authority to do these miraculous deeds. You'll note in the book of Acts, it's not every Christian running around doing miraculous signs and wonders. It's the apostles, and even then, they didn't do this in every case. So it's used here in this narrower sense, these who have been given this office of apostle, and we'll see the significance of that too in just a a few minutes. Well, then we have the list of the names, and before we look at these men individually, it would be worth making a few observations, because these lists occur here, this list of who they are occurs here. It occurs in Mark chapter 3. It occurs in Luke chapter 6, and it also occurs in Acts 1 with the omission of uh, Judas Iscariot. Well, if you look at these lists, you'll notice some things that that come to light. First, Peter is always named first. And it's interesting that Matthew says the apostles are these. First, Simon. Uh, Not so much that he occurs first in the list, that's obvious, But there is some sense of uh, his primacy, uh, of of his standing. Uh, He's he's primus inter pares. He's first among equals. Peter's always named first. Judas Iscariot is always named last. Uh, And you note, uh, or maybe we imagine it because we know the later history, but it seems like he's, he's, he's mentioned only with uh, some measure of grudgingness uh, to even name him at all. And in fact, uh, when he is named, he's always named as uh, the one who betrayed Jesus, that ignominy is attached to him. Well, the first four names on all four lists are those of two pairs of brothers whose call is mentioned first, Simon and Andrew, who are brothers, and James and John. Now, as you study the list, too, you'll notice that each list seems to break down into three groups of four men each. Each group is headed by first Peter, then Philip for the second four, and then James, son of Alphaeus, at the head of the the last four. Um, And now within those groups, the order may vary, but you always have Peter first, and then you have Philip uh, fifth, and then you have James, son of Alphaeus, ninth. Now, uh, except Judas is always last, whatever the variation. Now, that may suggest, it doesn't necessarily mean, it may suggest that even within the twelve, there was a division into three groups, each of those groups having its own leader, Peter, Philip, James, son of Alphaeus. Doesn't, don't know that, but just observing it might seem to suggest that. And uh, in Mark 6, the men were sent out two by two. It's noted, perhaps that accounts for the pairing that we read here. Uh, You have Simon and Andrew, 
James and John, Philip and Bartholomew. Were those the twos by which they were sent out? Again, we don't know, but just an observation about the text. Now, Mark, in his list, lists Peter, James, and John, and then adds Andrew. Uh, maybe, maybe recognizing that Peter, James, and John were in some ways closer to Jesus. They were the ones who witnessed the, uh, the raising of Jairus' daughter. They were the ones who witnessed the transfiguration. They were the ones who were closest to Jesus and witnessed his suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Matthew just recognizes them as siblings, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And here Matthew uh, puts himself last in his group, and he also mentions his former calling, the tax collector, uh, maybe just a recognition of his own uh, somewhat unsavory past, uh, maybe an indication of his humility, reminding us of where they're from. So those are just some observations about these lists. It's tempting to read over them, um, and yet even looking at them, the order of them, comparing Mark and Luke with what we find in Matthew, some things we might learn about it. Well, let's look at the men themselves. Who were these guys uh, that to us are uh, in many ways just names uh, and yet were real people living a real life when Jesus came in and changed their world forever? Well, again, first was Simon, who is called Peter. Remember, Jesus gave him the name Cephas, which means in Aramaic, rock. Uh, or Peter in Greek, Petros, rock. Uh, Jesus gave him that name. Simon Peter was a native of the town of Bethsaida on the Sea of Galilee with his brother Andrew as a fisherman. Uh, you read in John 1, it's quite possible he was a follower of John the Baptist before he became a follower of Jesus. Now, obviously, we know a lot about Peter. We know a lot about him from the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and also from the book of Acts up to Acts 15 with the Jerusalem Council. But after that, the focus really shifts away from Peter onto Paul, and we really don't know much more about Peter after the Jerusalem Council. Peter, of course, wrote the books that bear his name, the letters First and Second Peter. Uh, according to tradition and fulfilling the prophecy in John ch- uh, chapter 21, uh, according to tradition, Peter was uh, martyred by crucifixion. Although, again, according to tradition, he was crucified upside down uh, so as not to die in the exact same manner as his Lord. Andrew, uh, number two man there, was Peter's brother. Not nearly as prominent, however. Um, Don't know as much about him. His biggest claim to fame that we know of, again, in John chapter 1, verse 42, was another momentous occasion that didn't seem like much at the time, but the time that he introduced his brother... Simon Peter, to Jesus, and uh, brought these two men together. Certainly a world-changing meeting there. Uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Uh, Zebedee was a fisherman, we've already learned. His business was apparently prosperous enough that he was able to hire uh, other employees to work with him in the business. Uh, family wealth may have accounted for the family's link with the high priest uh, there in Israel. We, John seems to have access to places in his gospel that the others don't, to be in the home of the high priest and to be able to be present uh, in the court. And even John, being the only apostle we're aware of who was present with Jesus as he was dying on the cross, together with his mother, 
who was ambitious for her sons. You know, one of them sit at the right and left hand. We'll get to there in Matthew chapter 20. But to her credit, she was also one of the women who was there next to Jesus as he was dying, nailed to a cross. James and John were referred to in Mark 3 as uh, the sons of thunder, which uh, a nickname hung on them may tell us something of their temperament. James was probably older since his name always appears first. Uh, He also was the first apostolic martyr Uh, in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. Herod had imprisoned James and had him put to death. Uh, And when he saw that that pleased the Jews, he went after Peter also, had Peter arrested. And you'll remember how Peter was miraculously delivered when the angel came to him in answer to the prayers of the believers who, having seen James put to the sword, were desperately praying for Peter's deliverance. Uh, But because he was put to death early on, never achieved his brother's, John's, prominence, be careful that you don't confuse James, the son of Zebedee, with James, the brother of Jesus, who was uh, the one who presided over the council in Acts chapter 15 there in Jerusalem, and the one who wrote the book of James. It's not James, the son of Zebedee, it's James, the brother of Jesus. Well, John, of course, his brother, the other son of Zebedee, Seems to be a special friend of Peter. In fact, last week we were looking at, uh, we read John uh, 20 and how how Peter and John, uh, hearing the report from the women, went running to Jesus' tomb to check things out for themselves and uh, got there and discovered that Jesus had been raised. Uh, Beyond the scriptures, pretty reliable tradition places John as, uh, after Jerusalem had fallen in AD 70, places John as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Uh, where he served into fairly old age, nurturing future church leaders such as Polycarp, such as Papias, such as, such as uh, Ignatius, and others whose writings we have from the, the second century. John, of course, wrote the Gospel of John, bears his name, the, third, the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, which he wrote when he had been sent into exile on the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea and uh, wrote the book of Revelation. Well, then we go on. We have Philip and Bartholomew. Philip, also a native of Bethsaida, left John the Baptist to follow Jesus. <clears throat> he always appears first in the second group of four. Maybe he was that group's leader. And uh, according to one second century writer, Philip ministered in the Roman province of Asia and was buried in the town of Hierapolis. Bartholomew, now we really don't know much about unless, comparing lists, Bartholomew is also known as Nathaniel. Now, we do know Nathaniel from John chapter 1, uh, mostly from Jesus commending him, saying, Behold, here is an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Other than that, we really don't know a whole lot here. Thomas, uh, also known as Didymus, which is Aramaic, means the twin. Uh, Thomas is forever labeled uh, doubting Thomas, um, which he did. You know, it was really more unbelief that Jesus had been raised. He alone was not present that first night, Easter Sunday, that first evening when the disciples were there and Jesus came. And they later tell Thomas about it, remember. And Thomas says, no, you know, unless I see it, unless I touch the wounds, put my hand in his side, I I just can't can't believe that. And it wasn't because he didn't want to. It just seemed too good to be true. Uh, But we also need to remember Thomas for his courage. You know, when Jesus was preparing to go to Jerusalem, Thomas said, well, let's go and, if necessary, die with him. 
And, of course, upon seeing Jesus after his resurrection, Thomas' great confession, uh, bowing before Jesus and confessing, My Lord and my God. Matthew, we, we already have met, of course, studying uh, his, uh, his, his gospel here. James, the son of Alphaeus, again, to distinguish him from James, the son of Zebedee. Uh, Levi, or Matthew, also has a father, we learn later uh, in the scriptures, Mark 2, has a father named Alphaeus. Uh, was Matthew the brother of this James, son of Alphaeus? Uh, we don't know. Maybe two different Alphaeuses. But um, James uh, was the son of Alphaeus, possibly Matthew's brother. Otherwise, we know nothing about him. Thaddeus, who uh, in the other list is James, uh, or rather Jude in Greek, of James. Brother of James, son of James, we don't know. Uh, Thaddeus means the beloved. And it's possible he actually was Judas uh, Judas. Thaddeus, Judas the Beloved, and later just came to be called Thaddeus, maybe to distinguish him from the other Judas. We don't know. Uh, all we know of Thaddeus is that in John fourteen twenty two, he asked Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Other than that, we know nothing of him. Simon the Canaanian, which it doesn't refer to Canaan. It's an Aramaic word that means the zealot. Mark and Luke referred to him as, as Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were Jewish nationalists, hated Rome, and actually were responsible for the later Jewish war against Rome, which led to Rome coming in in the year 70 and destroying Jerusalem and destroying the temple and really putting an end to, uh, to the temple system. Uh, the synagogue system carried on, but... A significant event, uh, not only in history, but in redemptive history, as Jerusalem was in ruins, the temple was gone. Well, and then, twelfth, we do come to Judas Iscariot. Iscariot probably means something like the man of Kerioth. There were a couple of villages that bore that name. It uh, probably means where he was from. Uh, Judas, interestingly, uh, held an office among the twelve. He was the treasurer, although, as we learn, not an honest one. Uh, it's noted in the later in the other gospels that he uh, tended to filch money out of their common money bag, out of their purse uh, for himself. Ma- Matthew and Mark both uh, mention him as Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, and Luke simply labels him a traitor. Well, these are these the, the twelve that Jesus called. Some of them. Their names are known to almost anyone in the world, Christian or non-Christian. Others, uh, Christians, hardly know their names and certainly know nothing about them. But as we look at these men, uh, we realize that while some are well-known, some are not. God used every one of them in different ways. And, in fact, even Judas Iscariot, uh, whom Jesus refers to as the son of perdition, uh, the Lord used to set in motion those events that would lead to Jesus' crucifixion. Now, we certainly hope for better than, ourse- better than that for ourselves, uh, but the point is, even today, there are Christians who serve, whom, whose names are known among Christians and even unbelievers alike. Think of someone like a Billy Graham, uh, whose, names, whose name is so well known throughout uh, not only Christendom but the world, and others whose names are well known within Christian circles, men like John Piper or R.C. Sproul. And there are men like that here. There's men like Peter and James and John, whose names we know and who had obvious and visible positions of leadership. But there are other men among the twelve who are unknown and maybe quite unknown even in their own time. And yet the Lord used them. 
The Lord works through them. The Lord knows the things that they did. Tradition has it, we don't know for sure, that Thomas went to India as a missionary. Uh, We don't hear any more about him, and yet the Lord continued to use him. So as we look at this, men were encouraged. There are those who are visible, those who are basically invisible to everyone else, and yet the Lord is using all of them. Same is true of us, the Lord is using us. Well, then finally and briefly, let's talk just a minute about the meaning of the twelve. What's the significance here? Well, some things we can just notice about these men. First of all, they were quite ordinary men. There was, uh, there was no outstanding scholar here. Uh, we don't want to downplay their positions. James and John, sons of Zebedee, were involved in a fishing business. They were obviously, apparently, what we would call solidly middle class, uh, well enough to employ people, uh, perhaps have some connections in society there, but uh, in many ways very ordinary men. They were diverse men. Uh, one of the extremes that we see here was Matthew, on the one hand, who worked for the Roman government, and Simon the Zealot, which points to his past as, as a revolutionary who hated the Roman government. And yet you have these two men within the Twelve who uh, we can only imagine what kind of discussions they had about past activities and past loyalties, but a common loyalty to Christ transcended and overcomes any natural even enmity, hostility, that would have been there. They were ordinary, they were a diverse group, and yet one now in Christ. And they were also fallible. You know, we tend to elevate them. But we see in the gospel how Jesus would plain, uh, in plain words tell them things that were going to happen, and they didn't understand, and then they didn't get it, and they tried as patience. In times like when Peter denied knowing Jesus for fear, Fear of his life in the face of a vicious, overwhelming servant girl. Uh, quite fallible men. So we look at them, and it's encouraging. They were ordinary, they were diverse, they were fallible. In other words, they were a lot like you and me. And yet Jesus used them, and Jesus taught them. And over time they learned, and they grew, and he gave them his Holy Spirit. And they became as even their opponents acknowledged, men who were turning the world upside down. In other words, setting it into turmoil as they went out and lived for and died for the gospel of Christ and for the Lord Jesus. And then finally, just the number itself. We need to end by thinking about the number. We looked in the Old Testament reading and the New Testament reading at the number 12, 12 tribes of Israel. It's no accident that there are 12 men here. Because what Jesus is doing is establishing a new Israel. The new covenant Israel. Not a hard break with the old, but the, the number 12 tells us this is significant. This is a new beginning. This is a new era in the life of the covenant people of God. No longer determined by 12 tribes, but now determined by these 12 men who were given authority by Jesus to teach and through their ministries, ministries to establish the New Testament, the new covenant form of the church. That's why, as we read in Revelation, that the new Jerusalem, which was what? The bride, which is what? The church is built on the foundations of the apostles, their names there on the foundation. Now, that's symbolic. 
It's saying that just as the church was built on the twelve tribes of Israel, now it's resting on the testimony of these twelve ordinary, uh, fallible men who had followed Jesus and had been filled with the Holy Spirit and faithfully ministered in his name. So it's easy to read through this short little paragraph and just think nothing of it. And yet this is a momentous event. But we also want to be careful that we don't idolize these men, that we don't put them on pedestals. Yes, honor them for the place that they had, and yet we carry on their ministry today. We have been called by Christ. We have been called to minister in his name. We have been called to be one even in our diversity. We have been called to trust him and to follow him in life and in death. Because you and I stand on that foundation, the foundation that's recorded for us in Scripture. And you and I, though not charged with a specific office of, uh, of apostle, are indeed sent by Christ to be his disciples in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, in our schools, wherever it might be that the Lord Jesus should send us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these 12 men. Lord, many of them we know and heard about since our earliest days in Sunday school, others not as well known. But Father, we thank you that you used these men to build your church, that you built your church through them. But Father, we also thank you for the foundation that they have laid in the Word of God that is recorded for us, preserved by your Spirit. We pray, Father that in spite of their own native weaknesses, uh, in spite of our own weaknesses like them, just as you used them greatly and mightily, just as you worked through them, just as you worked above them, just as you worked even sometimes in spite of them, that you would do the same thing in us and through us and beyond us. And sometimes, Lord, when necessary, certainly in spite of us, that we might uh, not only follow our Lord Jesus, but follow in the train of these men whom you called. We ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.